You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. This is a special episode of the Hashtag FemSquire series, where I interview women attorneys and law firm owners about their career path and their experience as an entrepreneur, including why they became a lawyer, how their practice has evolved, their biggest challenges and successes as both attorneys and business owners, and their vision for the future. They share their philosophies about business and life. Don't reinvent the wheel. Whatever you're going through, these ladies have been there and done that already. Learn from their mistakes and from their successes. Find out what works for them and what didn't. And you'll find that their inspiration, motivation, and challenges are probably very similar to your own. Whatever you're experiencing, you're not alone. I hope you enjoy these ladies' stories. All right. We are here with another episode of Wake Up Call, the podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previtt. And joining me today for another edition of the hashtag FemSquire series is New Jersey divorce lawyer, Phyllis Klein. Hi, Phyllis. Hi, Christina. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for saying yes. And I did chase after you for quite some time. You did. And and I, I wasn't being difficult purposely. It would go in and out of my head. And then I'd see your email again and I'd feel terrible that I, I hadn't paid attention. It's certainly a great opportunity for me. So uh, marketing, if nothing else, and the idea that I would like put it off, you could see was not uh, purposeful, was dopey perhaps, but not purposeful. No, I don't even, I don't mean it as any criticism at all. It's just some people, if they don't get back to me, like I'll try a couple times and then I'm like, whatever, they're not into it. But I really wanted you on here, Phyllis. Well, I thank you. I'm so flattered and I really appreciate it. Of course. And I want to say again, because I told you before we started recording, but I want to make sure everyone knows that I admire you so much. I I have to say that our background is that I worked at your firm that you owned. I'm not the current firm you're at, but a different firm. I don't even know when. It was a long time ago, 17 years ago, something like that. And you were one of the attorneys there. And I was sort of this bright-eyed baby lawyer, you know, didn't really know how to do anything because, you know, you don't know how to do anything when you get out of law school. That's true. And I just remember seeing you and I could hear your voice coming out of your office when your door was open and, you know, advocating fiercely for somebody over the phone. And I was like, wow, she's really badass. She's kind of scary. <laughs> like, that's the kind of lawyer I want to be. So oh, I just wanted to that. tell you that because I think a lot of times we admire other women and we don't always tell them. It's never uh, never troublesome or, or tiresome to hear a compliment. So I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. So um, the podcast always starts out with the same question. Where did you go to college and what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I went to the University of Delaware. I thought I was going to be a probation officer. I don't, I don't know why, but I, for juveniles, I had it in my head that I would um, solve all the, the juvenile problems and, you know, those with files, you know, this thick, I would make them, you know, thin again because I'd be able to write the ship. It was, it was naive. Um, you know, I clerked for a judge after law school in, in Patterson for a year, and I quickly realized that even at th- th- that point, I was beyond being a probation officer, but I was 
interested in representing juveniles, thinking I could change their lives. And I realized that that was naive. You know, this is a very difficult situation, socioeconomically dis- dis- different, difficult situations. And it was, uh, you know, ended up not being my path, but that clearly was what I wanted to do. And I'm hoping that, you know, helping to change lives in any event, no matter what I do in my area, but that was the initial idea. Yeah, I was going to say that something I've learned over time is that you don't always realize that you can have such an incredible influence on somebody, anybody. With small things, you might not change their entire life at that moment or with the small thing that you do, but you're part of it. You know, you're part of what they end up doing moving forward. No, I agree. And I think it's true. And and, and you mentioned earlier that I was a divorce lawyer, which is true by background, but I do primarily mediate. And I think that, you know, I learn with mediation, you can really help a lot more because you're, you're, you're getting people to have a whole different mindset and to focus on amicable resolution or at least efficient resolution that saves not only emotional angst, but, but money. And, and that I think is, is something that I've really brought to the table to, to clients and, and to lawyers. And, and, Interestingly, you know, as, as you know, being a family lawyer, there's not a whole lot of gratitude in that job. You know, even if you do a, you know, quote unquote, great job for the client from your own objective perspective, or maybe somewhat subjective, you know, there isn't a lot of gratitude. Yet in mediation, there's tremendous gratitude. And I, and I didn't go into it for that, obviously, but I realized that it's true because not only are the clients happy that you were able to resolve their matter, particularly if they've been in litigation for some time, but even if not, but the lawyers are so grateful. There's even lawyers who primarily litigate are comfortable with it. It is their their world. They certainly know when it's time. And yeah. sometimes even though it's time and they can't manage it themselves, you know, you can really make a change. You can really turn people's lives around and lawyers to go home and feel good. And they feel good about you. You feel good about them. So there's a lot of productivity in it. I agree. And I can vouch for your mediation talents because I've used you many times. And the reason I kept coming back is because... I always felt that you really threw yourself into it. You didn't just show up physically. You really showed up in every way and really just, you know, pushed up your sleeves. And if you've been doing mediation long enough or litigation where you've experienced different mediators, you find out they're not all the same. You know, going to mediation isn't going to be the same experience with everybody. And I felt like with you, you really worked hard to get it done. I always say that when you go to mediation, there comes this moment in every mediation where your mediator is like done. They they give up. You see it in their eyes. You know, like they're exhausted. It's over. You're like, nothing more is getting done today. And certain people, I won't say any names, have like, you know, it's an hour, it's two hours. I feel like with you, it was like, never. I like, I never experienced that moment where I'm like, Phyllis is done. She just wants these people out of here. I really never felt that way with you. And- well, I really appreciate that. And that, that is sort of is my, I don't know, claim to fame, if you will. And I, my own mantra, you know, I, I say in my opening very often to lawyers and clients or just clients, if there's no lawyers, that we are going to get this done. And, and if, if someone gives up, it's not going to be me because that I think is one of my strongest qualities that I'm tenacious. I don't pretend to be a genius. And I say I'm not a genius. And this process is not rocket science. You just have to have a mindset that there is a resolution. We're going to find it. If we don't find it, a judge will. So shouldn't we try to find it? And there's always an answer. And if we have hit a stumbling block, you know, we do some kind of workaround. There, there is an answer. And people, 
don't have to be on the same page. They don't have to have the same motivation. They don't even have to agree on what the resolution should be for either of them. They just have to find an answer that works for both. And they don't even have to work together to do that. It's the mediator can facilitate it if he or she is just listening. It's really not complicated. And it just takes energy, like you said, and tenacity. And, you know, I, I never try to I never mix the concept of tenacity with patience because I have no patience. You know, I, I'm at a red light. If it changes to green, the guy doesn't move fast enough in front of me. I'm like yelling in my car. That's course, you. That's you, the, the person yeah. honking behind me. Yeah, probably. Well, no, because I only honk inwardly. I don't honk outwardly. But my point being that, yeah, I get tremendously frustrated, but I just don't let my eyes glaze over. You know, although I do send, you know, now on Zoom, you tend to see your reactions more. I do definitely have facial expressions that I've been working on since we've been on Zoom because you don't always realize what you're what you're demonstrating when you're, you know, non-verbally. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, no, it's true. It's a rarity where I say, you know what, I don't think I can settle this. And when I say it, I always preface with, I never say this. I never want to say this, but I'm just not sure I can. And sometimes I don't say it just to say it. I mean, I don't, I mean, I say it because I might feel it, but invariably when I do say that, people are so accustomed to me hanging on and not letting go. It actually sometimes turns people to say, no, no, we can. Like they, they, they take on the mindset and try to mediate me to get me back in it. And it sort of sometimes will help us through an impasse. But no, I, I, I appreciate what you're saying. And, you know, without sounding egomaniacal, I, I definitely agree that that's my talent. And, you know, I think that that's the best talent for a mediator to have. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You just have to listen and you have to be tenacious and you have to be patient, at least conceptually, you know, to, to yeah. really hear people out and try to understand what's going on. It's it's really just the best way to proceed in, in divorce. There's no question about it. Well, I'll say too that I feel like another ability that you have is to really be able to think outside the box. That's another thing that makes someone really good at mediation is not just looking at things like, okay, well, this is what alimony should be and this is what child support should be. I mean, like what you said is you have to listen to the parties. What do they really want? What each of them individually, what's really important? What are they really trying to achieve here? Because it's not always what they say. Absolutely. And I've seen you do that. I've seen you try to understand, okay, well, why do you think that you need that? Maybe there's some other way to achieve that. And I will say not every mediator does that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you do the mediation training. And I I mentioned to you before we got on the podcast that I'm now um, in charge with my partner, Stephanie, the mediation training for the um, court approved program in the state. And uh, we just did it for the first time together. Um, We just finished it about a week ago. And but when you take the training, at least before we were teaching it, you're taught to be, you know, facilitative, which basically is interpreted by some mediators, I think, to mean playing telephone. Like, what do you think? Okay, hang on. Let me just go tell him what you think and see what he thinks. It's not playing telephone. You still have to guide and push and pull and, and, and suggest and offer up ideas and all in the, in the context of questions. What do you think? Have you considered, you know, nothing that pushes, but you still have to be pushing and pulling. If you just sit there in the middle and you do nothing, they're not going to get anywhere. And most people come into mediation. They want help. Lawyers want the help. The parties want the help. And yeah, I do like to think, you know, I don't know that I'm the most creative person in the world. I'm, I'm very much more, you know, wait, I always get confused. Yeah. That was right. Is it right brain when you're, when you're verbal and you're not, I don't remember actually, well, whatever brain it is, that's the, that's the direct communicative part and not the creative part. That's me. I'm not creative in that sense. I'm not artistic, but I, 
I think it's more about, like you said earlier, you know, being tenacious requires that you're constantly thinking, 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 and that when you get to a point of impasse or something just didn't work, okay, well, what other way can we go? What's the detour? And if you just keep thinking, you're naturally creative, even if you don't have the capacity to create or be artistically creative, you just do. And, and you, and like you said, which is very important, you ask the questions, why, 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 why? And you usually get aha moments out of that because look, we don't always understand when people are telling us something, we don't understand innately why, because, and, and sometimes they surprise us. And once they surprise us, it usually creates another road. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I really love what I do. I mean, it's exhausting at times, you know, I, I can go, you know, straight through in a day, a couple of mediations in a row, prep the night, the next, that night for the next day. And it's not always pleasant. You know, people, there's a lot of angst. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of frustration. It gets taken out on you a lot. And there are days when I'm like, wow, this is rough, you know, it, and it's exhausting. So I'm not saying that every day is a gem. Every day is productive and wonderful, but every day I do still feel I'm doing the job. It may not yeah. always work out perfectly. You know, I, I'm not always successful, but I, and I tell people that I haven't settled everything, but I've settled most. And it's not to sound obnoxious. It's just to demonstrate that if you have the mindset and everybody gets on board with it, including the lawyers and, and the clients, you will resolve it. And, you know, mindset is everything. Mindset is everything that we do. It's, you know, staying on a diet, whether you're interested in listening to a podcast, you know, driving somewhere. I mean, if you're focused you can make something happen. If you don't focus, you can't. So it's really quite simple. You don't need a degree in you know, philosophy or psychology or psychiatry to get that. It's really a very common sense thing. Yeah. And you know, I've had mediations with you, which is not uncommon where you say, okay, I think maybe we've done what we can do today. Yeah. And we'll come back a different a day. Yeah. Um, sometimes people need that. Your, your litigation takes months and months and months. So why can't your mediation take a little bit of time too? Yeah. I, you know, you do. But the thing though, a little different though, um, even though I, I will sometimes suggest that we take a break, I don't take a long break. You know, I get a, scheduled immediately thereafter. I stay in touch in between. Lawyers tend to, I don't know if they do with other mediators, but they do with me, like in between, if they're emailing each other for whatever, they copy me. And, you know, if I see something's going wrong, you know, just, just yesterday, I saw lawyers emailing and about to blow off or, or, or cancel the mediation because they were fighting over parenting time to restart for a parent that hadn't had it for a variety of reasons. And I saw what was going on and, you know, they were canceling the mediation and they're filing motions. And I emailed, you know, can I try to help? You know, maybe we could do a conference call. And within 48 hours, we resolved it. And now there's no motion and they're coming back to mediation. And I didn't do anything special. I just got involved. And that's really all it takes. You don't have to be phenomenal at anything. You just have to be willing to get in the mix of people and put yourself in the middle, which sometimes means you're going to get beat up a little bit, but put yourself in the middle to try to help. People will take help when you offer it, usually. And sometimes they don't realize they need it or want it. Or maybe they think they don't want it, but then when you offer it, they take it. It's really, you know, very rewarding in that sense. It's feel good, even if it's a bad day. You know, yeah. if I did get beat up and yesterday was one of those where I thought people were taking it out on me when I frankly don't think they should have. But, you know, whatever, I'll take whatever heat, defend myself a little and move on. You know, because I, I realize that sometimes people just need to vent and sometimes it's on me and it stinks. But it's the way it is when you're in that kind of a a mix because it's really a battle. I mean, you're trying to keep it calm, but it is a battle. It's a dispute. Yeah. Somebody's got to get beat up. Well, you're also getting different people in there all the time and not yeah. everybody expresses themselves the same way. Not everybody expresses anger the same way. 
So you're getting all these different personalities, not to mention the attorneys. Where are we talking about the attorneys too? Because they have their own personalities and their own quirks. And I will say, and I can vouch for this personally, unfortunately, I have to admit that sometimes by the time I get to mediation, I'm so done with the case. It's I don't I think about like the stay-at-home mom who's got the kids at home and the dad comes home and after a long day with screaming toddlers, she's just like, here, you know, take the baby. I'm done. Like, that's how I feel sometimes by the time I get to mediation is like, Phyllis, please help. Yeah. <laughs> I can't do but this but, anymore. But because of that, that's why it works a lot of the times because everybody realizes they're at impasse. The lawyers are exhausted from the matter. The parties don't have any choice but to hang with it, even though they're exhausted. And you get a fresh face in the middle who's got no ax to grind, who's, you know, the only one who can see it objectively and is able to say that. Not that, you know, I said, look, it's not that I'm right about everything, but I'm the only one here that has the luxury of opining from the middle without without being uh, bent toward any direction. And it, it definitely makes a difference in how you view it and how you see it. You know, the the most challenging and interesting thing I think about mediation is somehow you have to develop a rapport with two individuals that don't trust each other. And, and they both have to trust you and they have to, even though they don't trust each other, you, you're in this triangle, but they, you get them to trust you. It just, it's really amazing when it happens. And even if they, you can never, you know, I'm always trying to get them to work better together, of course, particularly if they're parents and they're going to have to move forward together. And I, you know, I don't have a lot of patience for people that won't try. I, you know, I'm pretty direct and blunt about that. I, I think, you know, I think we owe it to our children, but that's another soapbox. But, you know, if you can get that rapport developed, I do think it brings people together a little bit because at the very least, they realize they agree on something. They can work with the same individual. And if they haven't agreed on anything for a really long time, it's a something. It may be a little something and maybe they don't even acknowledge it consciously. But I think it helps when people are so apart, you know, it gets them back together a smidge and it helps, you know, going forward too, particularly if they're parenting. Yeah. And and I hope it's okay if um, we can talk a little bit about your own personal experience that you got a divorce. Were you doing mediation in your practice already? Uh, 2000. And yeah, absolutely. Because our kids were, yeah, I've been doing it since before my kids were born or right at the same time. Yeah. um, You know, I was really very fortunate. I mean, I, I have not fortunate the fact that I got divorced, obviously that's not great, but um, you know, my ex-husband and I, get along well. We, we, we really did it during the marriage too. It just wasn't, you know, a marriage that one would want, you know, by marriage definition and the things that are important there. But in terms of, you know, trust level was there. We we're totally different people and personalities, but I always think that the reason we've, we've been able to manage so well is because we have the same value system. And if you have the same value system, you tend to feel similarly about things. And as a result, we could co-parent so well and be respectful of each other. And we had very little issues. I think we had less issues than people have when they're in intact households, you know, and, and and battle. We didn't battle. And part of the reason, you know, I think if you're if you're in a marriage and in an intact, happy marriage, you know, you have the luxury of battling in front of your children because they'll also see the makeup and they'll see that, you know, it's normal for parents not to get along every second. But then they see, you know, the goodwill of the marriage bringing the parents back together, whereas in divorce, if you just see battle, you don't see the goodwill of the relationship because there isn't one really. And, you know, my kids, we told them from moment one that, you know, we were still a family just because we were living in two separate households. Uh, doesn't change that. We're still two parents and two kids. And, you know, my, my favorite story is uh, my younger son and we were divorced for, I don't know, five years or so at this point. 
maybe he's 12 and he's arguing with me about something and he wants to do. And I'm saying, no, I don't remember what it was. But he said, I'm getting dad on the phone and asking what he thinks. And I said, you know what? That's a great idea. I'd really like to know what he thinks. And I, and I meant it sincerely. So I said, put him on speaker. Let's ask him. And then he just gets really pissed off. My kid and says, forget it. There's no point. Dad's just going to agree with you. <laughs> and like, you know, I got teary because, you know, that's like a beautiful thing to have your kid of a divorced family say that he was still perceiving us as a unit. It was annoying as hell to him. But to me, it was a wonderful thing, you know, that that's what his perception would still be. And that's how I've tried to live, you know, my life. And to this day, you know, we still get along well. We literally, he, my ex-husband, me, my older son just went a few weeks ago to visit our younger son in college together in the same hotel. You know, we did everything together the whole time. We visited my father together who lives down there. And, you know, I'm really... I'm proud of that. I'm proud you that we're proud able of to that. accomplish it. And, and I'm grateful to him because, look, I could do everything right, or at least what I perceive to be right, and he could not be on board with it, and we wouldn't have been able to do it. So were it not for his um, in, interest in doing that as well, we would not have what we have. And, you know, my kids are they're good. I mean, you know, we, we certainly didn't do them a good service getting divorced, but, you know, they're as good as, as good could be, you know, in terms of divorce. And I promote that to everyone. You know, people will say to me, you don't understand. Um, my husband did this to me. And I say sometimes nicely, sometimes not so much, depending upon how many times I've had to say it, but something along the lines of, I don't really care. I don't care what he did. You know, you, you put these children on this earth, you owe them a healthy upbringing and you can put it aside. You can vent elsewhere. I'm not telling you to like him. I'm not telling you to, to, to do anything nice for him. I'm just saying, do what you need to do for your children. Co-parent for them. You can. It is, is absolutely possible, as difficult as it can be in certain situations. And I know I had it easy, and I always say that to people. You know, I have kumbaya. I don't expect that you'll have that, but you can do this for them. And but you had kumbaya because you wanted to have kumbaya. Well, I did, and so but so did he. You know, I could have just as easily not had it. Um, so I, I do take credit, but I give him too. But I, I, but I do try to appreciate that not everybody has that good feeling about their ex-spouse, you know, that helps me put my children first, whereas other people don't have that. So it, it's even harder for them. And I, and I do respect that and I do understand it, but I, I still really do think it doesn't matter because kids, yeah. you know, you know, you do this for a living. You see how messed up situations are and kids in all kinds of therapy for years. And it just, it's, this is on the parents. It's just on the parents and they can make it better. Maybe they can't have it as good as, as as Brendan and I do or and our children do because of the way Brendan and I are able to be, but they can have it a hell of a lot better than it is. And I I don't have, that's one thing I admit, I don't have a lot of patience for. I try to be sensitive. I try to be encouraging. I try to say the right things to get them on the right path and not be you know mean to them about it. But you know my attitude is figure it out. Let's find a way. And it takes two. So if you can get one and you can't get the other, and I do a lot of you know, a parent coordination is also, but, you know, for your audience, it's basically, you know, mediation for unfortunate dysfunctional parents, you know, usually after a divorce who are still struggling even to reach an agreement as to exchange a weekend if somebody needs to switch. And I get in the mix of a lot of that, which is like the hardest job ever. Yeah, uh, it is. It's just, you know, it's massively uncomfortable. Well, some, people, some people need that slap in the face. I think so. I, I do. Or at least I think they need to recognize that it's not okay to just 
allow it to be as bad as it is. You have to at least try, you know, and try harder if you've tried. And it just, it's just necessary. But I do think that because mediation is such um, an intrinsic part of, of the way we function in divorce now or proceed through divorce, that people's mindsets are a lot better than they used to be. There's still a lot of dysfunction and, and difficulty, but it's way better. And lawyers are way better as a result. And even the most litigious lawyers, when they get into mediation, they do function differently. A lot of them do. You know, not everyone. There's always going to be a handful of those who like to churn a file and, and just don't care about human beings, which is sad, but there are people out, out there like that. You know who they are or some of them. Yeah. Um, but most people are not like that. And they may litigate the heck out of something in a courtroom, but when they hit the mediation point, when they're forced to go, if they don't choose to go, they will work to try to resolve it. I think most of the time. I've always thought that we need to revisit the whole process. Like why is ESP so far down the road? You know, why don't we yeah. make people go to mediation sooner? You know, I agree. And, and I think a lot of lawyers figure that out, but you're right. Why is the process that way? Well, you know, conceptually ESP is set up for the point at which all the discovery is done. You've done everything you need to do. All your gatherings done. And now you're ready to negotiate, but you can use mediation for that. I mean, you can use mediation to help gather. You don't need to wait. I agree. I think it's also partly because, you know, the court ordered process it's required. You're required to go to one session only. You know, if, if they made it earlier, it's certainly if you did it earlier in the process, it's going to take more than one session, right? Because yeah. you have you haven't even barely started. But you're right. I mean, I should really get on that myself, how to promote a change in the rules. Yeah. I'm with you. I'll help yeah. you. Yeah. The other no, thing I, I always wondered too, why don't we have form interrogatories? Well, you mean requ required forms? Because we all use forms. You mean... Well, like I think in, you know, like a car accident case, yeah. they have form interrogatories. Right, that ones the that everyone rule. uses. Yeah. yeah. Because um, I don't know about you, but, you know, if I've got some case with two W-2 earners, you know, making 200,000 or less, and I see this long, you know, list of questions. And one is like, do you have a horse? Do you have a plane? <laughs> Please really? produce your passport. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we don't know that already. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I haven't litigated in a long time, but I, from, from when I, my memory from when I did is if it was, we would have a short form form and we had a long form and even the short form, if it was overdoing it, I would, you know, just encourage my adversary, just look, not applicable, just skip the ones that are, you know, not relevant. And, and I don't need five years of income either. You know, just yeah. five years of documents, just give me three or one if one suffices for now. Like I, that's how I practice myself. Cause I, I was never really litigious. Even when I was a litigator, I hated it. I, yeah. I never liked doing it. I didn't like being, you know, in that kind of a battle. I, I like trying to get right at it. You know, I'm very much short assistance between two points. So I was never comfortable in that role and blessed and grateful for when mediation became in vogue because it was right up my alley. You know, I, I would never have any, hardly anything on my calendar in terms of court stuff because I wouldn't even file a complaint unless I absolutely had to. Like I always started my process even before it was in vogue, I guess, with trying to negotiate it. It's I'm with you. An adversary that would that was that was willing to do that. I never understand when I get a new client and then I get a complaint immediately out of the blue. I'm like, why? Why didn't you call me or send me a letter or something? Why now yeah. we have to go through the court and you know answer the complaint and do a case management conference and all that other stuff? It's almost a, a distraction. You don't think it's it's not different today? I mean, is it? 
less litigious even in the litigation practice than it was? Or you still think it's similar? I think that the public is more attuned to mediation and are looking for alternatives to traditional litigation because it's expensive and, and it takes forever. I So I think attorneys are responding to that. Yeah. But I, I do think there are still a lot of attorneys that kind of have, I don't want to call them one trick ponies, but they sort of have a script that they follow, you know, like yeah. a person comes in, we file a complaint, we do this, we do that. And, you know, I think those are typically the people that they haven't even looked at a settlement outline at all until ESP because they had to, because there was ESP. Yeah. You should be talking about settlement long before you get to ESP. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's slow moving, but I do think what you think is actually happening. And I say that just by virtue of how many private mediations I get with lawyers involved way before it's required under the core rules. So that suggests to me that what you're thinking should happen is actually happening, maybe not at the pace that it should. And maybe if the, as you said earlier, if the rules were changed, you had to go to mediation earlier, ESP earlier, um, that might, it probably would make more sense if it's mediation earlier, not ESP earlier, because ESP, I don't know that in a half an hour, if the case is that young, a panel could really do the trick if they don't have enough info, but maybe mediation early yeah. to see if mediation can be the way. Either way, you know, your point's well taken. I have to think more about that. And maybe Well, we I think you're right. I think I associate ESP with people then finally, if they haven't already, talking about settlement. So I think you're right. It's not necessarily, there's nothing magical about ESP. It's just that that's, tends to sometimes be the time period when people get a little bit more serious about talking about settlement. Yeah. And that's what you're really saying. Mm -hmm. Whatever we call it, whatever process is early, your point is, why don't we require a settlement conversation early and, and, you know, pull, pull discovery in with that. Clearly we still need information, whether you're yeah. mediating or not, you don't just mediate ad hoc You mediate with information, just like you litigate with information. Just let's get it in a more settlement oriented process. That makes good sense to me. You know, I'm wondering too, if that was initially supposed to be part of the purpose of a case management conference, because you're supposed to talk about what discovery you need. So if you need to determine what discovery you need, then you need to know what the issues are. You know, where are we in conflict? Where maybe are we not? I don't want to start suggesting now that the case management conferences be mandatory in person, because I know some judges do that, but I, I think generally. Well, but maybe, maybe what, maybe what we try to accomplish is to have one of the questions and one of the line items on the form, the case management form is, is to consider whether mediation would be useful right from the start and whether the parties want to voluntarily go, because then it would, at least it would get in people's heads. And even if the lawyers don't think so, if it's in the form and it's a required part of the conversation with the court, Clients are going to get wind of it. Maybe the clients are going to say, hey, is there's another way? I didn't even realize there was another way. I mean, as we know, we're required as lawyers to explain all the complementary dispute resolution processes, even in the initial consultation. And we we provide documentation with the with the retainer agreement. But people aren't always told about it as well as they should. Nothing, not knocking lawyers, but they don't necessarily think about talking about that because they get into yeah. a certain mode. So maybe maybe that would help put the settlement in the conversation early. It's really good thoughts. I so think it's a great this, idea. Christina. You have good ideas. I do. Once in a <laughs> while. <laughs> 
All right. So I want to, we got like totally on a tangent. I want to go back to your aspirations to be a probation officer. Why mm-hmm. do you think you wanted to do that? Like, where did that come from? Um, Cause it's so specific. I know. I, I don't even know where it came from. It's not like I grew up with anybody who had a probation officer that I can recall. I guess the one when I was younger, it's maybe it's from watching TV, who knows, but I, I knew that that was an official or a, or a, um, a job where one could help kids, you know, be better. And that's, I think, where it came from. And I do remember my, you know, make, hopefully this doesn't sound like my mother was a snob, but um, she was upset that that was what I was aspiring to because she felt, you know, as mothers do, I could do more. So she took me to, you know, in those days, you couldn't just go easily get tested for what your aptitude was. So she took me to like this Benet Brith testing site or something to test me, to demonstrate to me that, you know, I had a brain beyond maybe if, you know, she didn't think that was a good enough job or, you know, a good enough earning job. Yeah, I job. get it. You know, I, I still stayed on that path. But then, like I said, when I went to college and then I decided to go to law school, I still thought I would work with juveniles, but just in the capacity as a lawyer, a public defender, something like that. But yeah, I mean, I think it just came from recognizing that I could do good. Like I could, I could help kids. I could help people do better, you know, personally. And that was what I wanted. And I, about halfway through college, I was thinking I wanted to be a psychologist, uh, but I, I, I wasn't a psych major. And in those days, going to college more than four years, unless your degree called for a five-year program was like unheard of. You finished in four years. It was like an embarrassment if you didn't. Today, it's like a joke. You know, you take your kids to these college tours and they, they're so proud, the colleges, of getting kids out by year six. And I'm like, year six, what are you talking about? My kid's out of here in four years. I don't care. But in any event, so I didn't want to switch my major to psychology. And, you know, I, I don't wish that I did, but I, I do sometimes, as you know, there's so much psychological analysis that goes on with what we're doing because of what we're dealing with and the kinds of issues that our clients are dealing with. I, I wish that I had that background. I'm jealous of, of lawyers who are also you know, have their um, a license in social work or something, some something because I could really perceive things better than I can. And, you know, I wish I did that. You know, in fact, when I do this parent coordination, if I really perceive that it's beyond my ken because there is some type of, I don't know, mental health issue that I really can't work with because it's, you know, look, I, I function in parent coordination as a practical, in a practical role. But sometimes it needs more than that. And then I will send it to someone who has got a mental health background, if not a mental health professional, but a, someone who has that combination. But so that that's where I was. I got out of college and I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I took some law courses just as you're taking all kinds of courses. And I just literally got out after four years, like clueless. And it was my one of my parents suggested law school. And I thought, yeah, that's a really great idea. But I it it was really out of just not knowing what else to do. And then it just sounded good. And I, I think it was really the perfect move for me. I mean, I think I, I, I love the law. I'm one of those like weirdos that can read the court rolls at night, you know, for fun. I don't do it anymore, but I just that love is it. that is weird. Phyllis. It is weird. I just really like. <laughs> I used to they used to in my old firm, School of Wolf, when I was there, they would refer to me as the queen of the rules. If anybody needs to know what rule was something, they'd run down to my office. Just love. I, I maybe it's just I love order, even though I live, you know, without order a lot of the times, as we all do. I like. I like order. I like knowing what the lines are, but I'm also comfortable, as you indicated before, you know, going outside the box and outside the lines. But I kind of like to know. And that's why I think, too, I'm more an evaluative type of a mediator where 
I'm not just playing telephone. And yes, I'm attempting to facilitate a resolution, but I'm also evaluating positions that people take, particularly when there's lawyers there, because, you know, look, it's got to make sense. You, you can't, if you can't convince a judge of it, what, what's the point of demanding it in mediation unless you're going to give up something for it, right? It's got to, it's got to be common sense. You got to be able to sell it. If I can't, you know, sell it because it's it evaluates to nonsense, then, you know, I'll, I, I'll tell people that, you know, don't send me in there with that. Well, I, I'm not going to be able to get that. I'm going to look like an idiot. And I, don't I think I've heard many. that. I've heard yeah, that. I'm, that I'm sure mind. I've said it. I, I've said <laughs> to people, I'm not, you know, when people get very feisty with me, you tell them that I'm like, you go tell them that I'm not telling them that, you know, like, it's not going to go over. Like what don't bother, you know? So I think that, you know, you, I was oriented toward solutions, you know, that, that was my goal and, and my job. And, you know, I picked a probation officer because maybe it sounded good and it was what I thought my limitation might be. And, but I'm not sorry that I chose the route that I did. Obviously, you know, we want to make as much money as we can and I make a good living at this. I used to want to be a judge really badly, but I'm not political at all. So there was no really hope of that. And then I just decided it wasn't so bad anyway, considering, you know, we can make more in, in their earnings as uh, lawyers and judges can most of the time. So and you can be in. more flexible with what you do and when you do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm trying to understand though, like maybe I'm, maybe I'm just trying to dig too deep, but were you exposed to pe- like the kind of people that you thought you wanted to help? Cause you were so specific that they had I know. juveniles. I don't know. I, I, it's funny. I, I really have to think back more on it to give you a better answer than what I've given. It came right out of me because that's what I know I wanted to be. But I don't really, as I sit here, I can't remember why I wanted to be it. Uh, it sounds like you wanted to be a helper. But but I don't know that it's any different from like, you know, a six-year-old that says he wants to be a fireman. You know, why? Because you saw a fireman help somebody and it looked good and they were saving lives and that was a good thing. So you picked a fireman, you know? So maybe I picked a probation officer because I, for the same reason, Phyllis- I thought that they could help. Were you on probation for something? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, no, I wasn't. I haven't been arrested. Thank God. I don't think I've done anything to be arrested. I hope. Uh, but no, it wasn't that. It wasn't right. that. And I, and I am glad not to anything against somebody who's a probation officer. I mean, it's a very needed and, and responsible and, and a career that we should look up to people that do that job. It's a rough job. But, um, you know, I'm glad I chose the path I did because I think I... I'm doing maybe more good than I could have in that role. I think that role is incredibly difficult to make change or affect change. And I think I can do it a lot better in what I do for a living. And, you know, people that do what we do, you know, it's hard when people say to you, you know, what do you do? And, and you know, it's, they don't do what you do and you're going to tell them what you do and you know, you're going to get some kind of negative comment. And, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think I put a spin on it. I think I'm honest about it. And I, and I say, look, I really, I'm not asking people to get divorced. I don't want people to get divorced. I don't promote it. If I see any hint of maybe it shouldn't happen, I try to get them elsewhere to help mental health professional work on it. You know, I certainly don't want people to get divorced, but if that's a choice that they've made, then I'm going to do the best I can to help them get through it in the sanest, most amicable, least cost-effective way or most cost-effective way. So, you know, I I think we're doing a good service here. I think I am doing a good service. I I don't think the ultimate goal or the end end that happens that people are getting divorced is a good thing. I'm not necessarily proud that that's what I've helped people do. But if that's what they're going to do, then I want to help them do it the best I can. 
And I think that stems from, you know, my personality and maybe why I wanted to be a probation officer and why I wanted to do anything. I never wanted to be the fireman, but that was kind of scary. But other than that, you know, they've all been roles like that. I think that um, maybe you would agree with this. I've always wanted to do something to help remove the stigma associated with divorce because I saw a headline recently and it was about J-Lo and A-Rod apparently broke up. And it said something... Well, supposedly they're back together. I don't know. But the headline said that their relationship failed. And I really didn't like the way that that was expressed. And we hear that all the time that, you know, if you get divorced, there's always some expression that your relationship failed. And I really hate to be so negative about it. It's like, okay, I know we shouldn't celebrate divorce, I guess. But why do we have to say that the relationship failed? I mean, if you had a long relationship, well, if you had a short relationship, you were together for a reason. There must have been good things that came of it, whether they were just lessons you learned, some fun you had for a little while, whatever the case may be. And that relationship ran its course. And now you're both moving on to be happy doing something else. Why do we have to look at that as though it failed? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I'm thinking as you're talking about my own situation, of course. I don't know. I mean, I think just naturally, if something doesn't work out, it's a failure in that sense because it didn't last. I don't think there's any way around it. It, I do still believe, you know, the fact that I couldn't find a way to stay married, which is something that, you know, I wanted marriage so badly. I have no problem admitting that. I didn't meet my ex-husband until I was 35. I wanted it. I wanted children. I never thought I'd be on the other side of my desk. I was, you know, desperately unhappy when it ended and I had a hand in it. It's not like he just ended it. So, and I, I do perceive it as a failure, but a failure with reasons, you know, I mean, I know, I I think I know what happened. So I don't like just walk around thinking about, I failed. I don't, but I do think it is a failure. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying it's a failure. I think, but you can also say at the same time, you, to understand why, why you made certain choices, what you've learned from it as a result. Hey, we're always learning from mistakes. I don't think there's, I don't think we have to sugarcoat it. I think it is a a failure. It's a mistake. It was an error. I mean, it's, there's negative words that go with things that don't work out, but I think it's okay to put the negative word on it. As long as you come out of it with something positive and you're growing because we always want to grow and learn. Right. I mean, I, I thought when I was young that by the time I hit, you know, I was in my 40s, I'd completely have it together. And I had it. It was all going to it didn't really dawn on me that, you know, you would still make mistakes and grow and learn and make more mistakes and grow and learn. And I, you know, if I felt like being more personal on this podcast, I would tell you about a mistake I made just three weeks ago that devastated the hell out of me that required that had me actually call a therapist because I was like, traumatized by a choice that I made and and the mistake it was. But you know what? I, you know, I made it. I'm going to be 60 years old. I still made a stupid mistake, bad choices. And I got to the bottom of why I did it and learned from it. And I will not do that again, you know, or hopefully I won't do it again. Right. So I, well, not that mistake. You might make other mistakes. Well, of course, but my, but my point is, I don't, I don't think I appreciate your point. I do. And I know what you're saying. And I don't think we're saying anything differently. It's just my Mm -hmm. word choice. I don't think there's anything wrong with a failure. I think it's unhappy a lot of the time and it's unfortunate all of the time, but 
it's going to happen. I mean, there's there's no way to just sugarcoat everything and that everything is happy and wonderful and every day is great. You're going to wake up sunshine and happy from the first moment of the day to the end of the day. And all you're going to do is smile. I mean, that's just baloney. It's not real, which is one of the reasons. And I know you're a Facebook fan, so no criticism. I'm not on Facebook because, you know, inherently as confident as I as I maybe appear to be. I'm super insecure in many ways. And I find myself when I was on Facebook for a while reading everybody's, you know, posts like, what's wrong with me? Why is everything about their day so goddamn great? Why am I not happy 100% of the time every single day? And I knew it wasn't real. I know people put their best face forward all the time, but it bothered me that that's what I was, you know, I'd be compare myself or yeah. I just didn't love the idea that it's not real. Like I would rather, you know, if, if if I like just before this podcast, we talked about real stuff, stuff that was good, stuff that wasn't good. You know, that's what I want in my relationships with people. Reality. And I don't have any problem with people, you know, choosing their words and not bearing their soul. I mean, different relationships will allow for that. And and some don't, you know, but I want it to be real. Otherwise, what's the point? What is yeah. the point? Uh, who, why, we don't have time. I don't have time for fluff. I mean, fun. Yes, but not fluff. Make it real. Make it serious. Make it important. Even if it's you know, well, and I should say make it important because lots of times you want to deal with stuff that's unimportant, but just make it real. I, I think that life is more fulfilling that way, even if it's not always happy. That's how I function personally and professionally. And it serves me. It may not serve every human being, but it serves me. I'm and with you. Are you an Aries? <laughs> no, I'm a Virgo, oh. which I think is probably why I'm like anal retentive and insecure. I don't know. I think it's the Virgo element somehow. <laughs> It's also where I get my organization and 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 uh, forward thinking, I think too. But I'll have to read up on Virgo. I don't know a lot about Virgo. Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't know. And then you have your houses and where you are in Virgo. I I don't know. Someday. But are you are you an introvert? And when I say introvert, I mean, are you the kind of person that needs to take little breaks from people to kind of recharge? Uh, like, do you? Feel I think I'm more of a social animal than that. No. Um, I don't think so. I mean, I definitely like my downtime and I'm happy with my downtime. Like tonight, I have no plan. Totally happy with that. You know, go home, sit, probably eat ice cream for dinner and nothing else and watch something stupid on TV and then like clean my room. Like I'm happy with that. But then, but that's because I have a plan tomorrow and tomorrow night. Like I would not want to be by myself the entire weekend that I don't, I don't, I don't, I like to have, especially because I work so many hours, right? So I don't want my life to be all work and then by myself. So I always want to fill it with something um, fun, hopefully, and with people that I like to be with. You know, I'm kind of discerning like that. I mean, I think everybody is, but I, I want to be, you know, I want to spend my free time in a way that makes sense with people that I like to ha- enjoy, you know, their company that I enjoy. But I'm an introvert, not maybe an introvert, but I'll get insecure in situations that would seem odd, like if I'm walking in, I'm the president of the in, in of court. Okay. I walk into an in a court meeting oh, right now. I'm just doing zoom. But when I was walking in, I know, you know, 70% of the people in the room, but I hate walking in by myself from the moment I'm driving into the parking lot to the walking in, I have agita, like walking really? in alone. Yeah. And why it's so stupid. It doesn't make any kind of sense, but I do until I see the first person that I know and strike up a conversation and then I'm fine. But I, I also get nervous when I get up in front of a group, even though I'm fully capable of expressing myself and I, I'll prepare like hell if I'm nervous about what the topic is, of course, so that I, I don't I get rid of some of those nerves. But I I get really nervous in situations where you wouldn't expect. 
I, I also like I'm hypersensitive. I, you know, I mentioned that to you earlier that, so I think I choose my words. So, well, I call it mediation speak and mediation, but I choose my words like that most of the time, even in conversation with others, because I can get hurt easily by how somebody words things. So I try to word things well myself. It's one of the reasons I don't like texting so much because, mm. you know, you know how yeah. that can go. I've gotten but, in so much trouble with texting and emails. So I wanted to ask you, how did you get into mediation? Because you were doing litigation back when yeah. I worked w- at your firm. So how did you um, evolve? Well, I didn't, uh, as I, I was saying earlier, relative to how I was practicing, I was really in mediation mode as a concept, even though I wasn't calling it that because I was always in settlement mode. I always tried to negotiate first and and file complaints way later, if at all possible. And then when the mediation training came along, and, you know, the rule, I don't remember what year it was that the, the rule of a complimentary dispute resolution was a pilot program, I guess, initially. And whenever that was and the training came out, I, I know it was in, at least when I took it, it was in 2001. I just jumped at it because to me, it just was right up my alley and spoke to me. And I really, I was never really happy in litigation mode. I hated court. I mean, I could do it. I hated it. I hated arguing with people. I mean, I like arguing with people. I mean, yeah, I'm arguing all day long, right? We're always in controversy, but I didn't like... Because you're always right, Phyllis. Yeah, right now. <laughs> I, I mean, I that's that's one thing I about myself too. I really try to be open to that I'm wrong. And I'm, I'm always admitting when I'm wrong, not because I'm so wonderful, but it's because I love it. I love when people tell me that I'm right. So I feel like if I'm going to want people to tell me that I'm right, I have to be willing to admit when I'm wrong. But, you know, I just didn't like the, to me, it was such a time waste litigation. You could get to the end. Yes. But it was such a time waste and it caused so much strife for people. It was upsetting to me. I didn't, I just, I hated that. That's what I was doing for a living. I mean, not when I was trying to settle, of course. and, And if I was successful there, that was fine. And and I was still doing right by people there. But when I was stuck in the crosshairs of it all and trying cases and I didn't like the agit of it. I didn't like the time of it. And like it took my weekends like tremendously. I mean, we'll still work on weekends, but not like, you know, when you have a trial, you're like yeah. prepping morning to night. I just hated it. So I jumped at it when I saw the mediation training and I didn't know if I'd be able to develop a practice. It just sort of morphed into it. You know, I didn't stop litigating. I just just kept getting more and more referrals as the time progressed until one day I wasn't representing individuals anymore. I maybe have, I get very few referrals now, you know, just like anything, if you stop doing it, your name's not out there. Right. So I probably get, you know, five, eight a year. And invariably I pass them off to my partners if I can, because I don't, I don't want to do it or I'll hang on to it. And I'll tell the people, as long as it's amicable, I'm your man. But as soon as there's going to be any litigation, I'm going to pass you off because I said, you don't want me. It's not my niche anymore. I can do it, but it's not what I do daily. Yeah. And you, you're better off with somebody who can handle that. Did you ever consider leaving law when you were doing litigation and you were, were not no. enjoying it? Oh. No, no, because I was trying to, you know, mediate my way by, you know, at least being settlement oriented. So I was managing, I wasn't considering leaving. It's just when I saw mediation, I realized, wow, a way to do this so much better and, and enjoy it more. And, and then th- there is a massive downside of being a mediator. You cannot delegate like you can when you're a lawyer. So you have to work a lot more hours to make the same money because you don't have an associate at your hip that's doing a lot of the work, right? So 
you got to do, you know, 82% of it or 92% of it. You can have somebody, you know, type up your, your summaries or type up your MOUs or, or agreements that you write, but you're, you're the one in the mediation session. You're the one talking to people in between. You're the one that's, that's formulating proposals and such. So you can't pass it off. So it's a lot, uh, you know, it can be, you know, it's anywhere from a eight to 14 hour day, depending. Okay. I know you have to run because you've got uh, some fires to put out there in mediation world. Um, what do you feel like if you looking back on your life so far, what do you feel like is probably the most valuable lesson that you've learned? Because you're a real grown up now. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's probably, you know, be true to yourself and be sincere because not only is that important in personal relationships, super important in professional relationships, and you will be successful in all your relationships, personal and professional, if you're believable and credible and people can rely on on your word. So I think that. That's a good one. And then final question, is there anything that, any regrets that you may have in your life that you hope your children don't do in their lifetimes? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, one of my flaws, and of course we all have many, is that I, um, I'm so decisive, which is not a bad thing, but it can be a bad thing. Um, I'm emotional and I'll go with my gut too fast sometimes. And as a result, that's where my mistakes will, will come from a lot of the times. So I try to teach my kids to be reflective and take a breath and, and not to get themselves in a mix too quickly. And of course they will, and they do their kids and I do too still, but so I think that's like the life lesson I try to teach my kids the most and to be, just be good people, just be good people. And yeah, and I, I think they are, you know, one struggles more than the other one has my personality. So he's uh He's can be tough, just like his mother, but the other one is uh, very even, like his dad. So he 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 learns that well or more easily. Yeah, I think I'm with. I'm more like you. I that's oh, something sure. else I've had to learn too. Well, for thank sure. you for your time. Thank for thank you for all your wisdom. I uh, thank to you. Have you on again. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. It was really fun for me, and uh, I didn't really know what path we were going to go down. So obviously, there's not no preparation and just talking. But I hope that I've been able to answer your questions in a way that is helpful for your audience too, or at least entertaining. Uh, absolutely. And I have to say, I never know what path we're going to go down either. So, uh-huh. um, And we'll end with you sh- telling us how can people reach out to you if they're interested in using your services? Oh, sure. Um, well, our, our, my, my email address, of course, is, is pklein, P-K-L-E-I-N at dhkwlaw.com. And our firm website is dhkwlaw.com. Or, of course, uh, call the office, 973-467-5556. I'm happy to help anybody. And I'm also happy to mentor anyone who's interested in this field and needs a little bit of support or guidance. I've had a lot of people help me, and I always like to you know, pay it forward, as they say. Well, that's a generous offer. And I'll have all of that information in the show notes for anybody that wants thank to you. reach out to you. Thank you so much. All right. Go get them, Tiger. <laughs> all right. Thank you again. Let's keep in touch, please. This was Absolutely. an absolute pleasure re- reconnecting with you. Let's not... The fun ended, all right? I would love to. I all would right, love excellent. to, Phyllis. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, 
basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.